Greetings, everybody. Welcome to a new round of the Wind Up Podcast. I am your host, Mike of MTGA Wines. It is great to be back with you again for our end of the month, our June Q&A session. We're going to be diving into a handful of questions that we've received in the cellar uh, through email, through the comments, whatever the case may be and see how far we get. We've got some fun ones this week regarding working with and around other wine, other wineries within Napa and the wine industry as a whole. Also some winemaking questions involving sweet wines versus non-sweet wines versus just some of the quality control stuff that we deal with. Uh, we are also continuing our new segment. Be sure to stay tuned for our Wind Up Wine of the Week. Uh, we'll be getting into that towards the end of the podcast as well. So uh, just a reminder, if you need or have any questions that you want answered on the show, submit them through the comments section. You can go to our website, mtgawines.com. Scroll down towards the bottom. We have a little form there on the homepage that you can fill out and submit questions and send them our way. Every month at the end of the month, this last week of the month, we try to tackle as many of them as we can. We usually get through about three to five questions, depending on how in-depth they are. So I have a running list of stuff that we're going to be tackling. If you want your question answered, just make sure you send it our way through our DMs, through the website, whatever that case may be, and we'll make sure we add them to the list to get after them. So without any further ado, let's get into it. So these these first couple questions I love because it, it involves kind of the, the culture of Napa Valley as a whole. Uh, question number one, how competitive is the Napa wine industry? Because of how many wineries are out there, are you just at each other's throats all the time? The answer, actually, the quick answer is no. But here's why. And the why is very, very important. Number one, you are correct. There are a ton of wineries you know, in a very small area. I mean, look at it this way. Napa is 150 square miles on a good day. It's not a big place. On top of that, you have probably about 500 brick and mortar wineries, and then another like 1500 plus what we call kind of virtual brands, places that rent out facilities or make wine, but they don't necessarily have like their own winery. So just to be conservative, let's say there are 2,000 different wine labels within that 150 square miles. It's a bunch of people making wine out here. And the beautiful thing about the culture of Napa, and this is one of the reasons why I got back into the wine industry when I moved back home here in 2008 and into 2009, was it was very collaborative. It was very open. People wanted to talk shop. People wanted to help each other out. And it was just an amazing culture. There are certainly certain people and brands who are a little edgier, who kind of think their shit don't stink, and we let them play in their sandbox by themselves because they're happiest doing that. We all know who those people are in the industry, and we are happy to let them just do their thing. It's all good. We just don't care because realistically, we're fermenting grape juice. We're not saving lives. It's too, it, it's it's just a, it's an easygoing product, realistically, and it's meant to be just enjoyed. There's no reason to be stuffy about it. So all of us, all the cool people, <laughs> you know, are like, yeah, let's let's hang out, let's talk shop. 
It's a beautiful thing. It's actually really fun when we hang out kind of during the harvest months or typically like right after harvest. Like for us, you know, with a bunch of friends, we have a big like Halloween get together around Halloween every year and harvest is wrapping up for a lot of people at that stage. And we're just, how'd it go? What's going on? What'd you do differently? What worked? What broke? What didn't? It's, it's just, a, you're just talking shop. It's just a beautiful community of people that want to be a part of it. And we also know as much as us winemakers want you to only drink our wine all the time, we know that that's not the reality. And the reality is, is that we don't drink our own wine all the time. In fact, that's why we started doing this wine of the week segment is because we're drinking a lot of other stuff and there's a lot of other great wines out there that we want to introduce you to. And we hope that you find some that you like. Because you don't want to drink the same thing every night for the rest of your life. You want to have some options. You might be cooking fish one night. You might be cooking steak the other night. You might be just in the mood for something lighter, maybe for something bolder or some bubbles. So it's a very collaborative industry. And we're not really at each other's throats. I mean, like any industry, there's some proprietary information. There are certain things that we, you know, try not to... Um, you know, share necessarily because it's kind of like intellectual property. There are certain things I do in the cellar in my winemaking that I try and keep somewhat buttoned up. But even then, it's not like beer. Beer is, you know, the recipe, and this is how I kind of equate it. Winemaking is kind of like cooking. You need that like little dash of this some years, a little pinch of that. It's very malleable and flexible to what you're doing. And beer is like baking. When you're baking something, you have to nail the recipe to get it done right. And once you have that recipe, you keep it really close to the chest because you don't want anybody else replicating it. It's a little bit, you know, I don't know if, it doesn't seem like beer is that competitive, but I do know from the brewers that I've talked to at least, they keep that, those recipes very locked down. They're not telling you jack shit <laughs> about how they do things because that's their secret sauce, right? Where winemaking, because it's so malleable and there's a little bit more ebb and flow to the season and the winemaking side of it, it's a little just like, yeah, here it is. It's on the table. Go do what you want to do with it. Uh, there, I had a great example uh, of this uh, with a really great friend of mine who uh, the owners of the winery that he works for and has been making the wine for for quite a long time, they make a killer Sauvignon Blanc, one of my favorite Sauvignon Blancs in the Valley. And they had a friend of theirs that wanted to make a really great Sauvignon Blanc. So they connected their winemaker with these folks and said, hey, Tell them how you make great Sauv Blanc. And he, you know, is sharing this story after the fact. And is like, yeah, that's not really how it works. Because you're not, you don't have, you're not buying fruit from the same vineyard. You're not using the same facility. You're not using me as a winemaker. You're not doing the things I would do necessarily. Like there are so many variables that are already outside of the control. There's no way you're making the same Sauv Blanc that I am. There's just, there's no shot. It, and this is something that we try to reiterate to folks a lot of times is that you want to make XYZ, you better buy that vineyard because that's the starting point. You know, you can make something that's congruent or parallel to it, but you're certainly not going to make that same wine if you don't control that vineyard or fruit from that vineyard. So it's not really competitive in that sense because it's damn near impossible to make a wine identical. 
to another wine down the road unless you're using a lot of the extracts and additives and, and all the nonsense that you know a lot of the mass producers use. It's just kind of the reality. You can't really, and even then, you can't really doctor up wines like that. There's a great experiment, and I can't remember if I've mentioned this in a previous show. There's a little bit of a tangent, and I believe it was the Japanese at one point. This was years ago, probably in the last 10, 15 years maybe. They were trying to reverse engineer. There's a Japanese company that was trying to reverse engineer 100-point wines, kind of the, what we're considering, you know, the kind of the cream of the crop, really high ratings, really high reviews kind of thing. And they're like, if we can recreate this in a lab setting, we can just make killer wine on a dime and everyone's going to be drinking the best wine. It was like the billion dollar idea for the wine industry, right? And they failed miserably. It never worked. And that's and to that end, it's like, yeah, this is why we just collaborate because there's as competitive as we could be, there's really no reason to be. You know, kind of the rising tide raises all ships mentality is that's how we operate out here. Um, so, you know, in terms of competition, it's really not that bad. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty easy going. You know, it has its moments like any industry does, but it's never like I can only ever equate it to like the tech industry or, you know, like car companies come like who which EV trucks going to hit the market first or who's going to have the best this or that. Like you're not fighting for market share necessarily in that regard, unless you're one of the really big guys trying to control a certain level of the market. So it's really not that competitive. And then it's really, really nice. Uh, it makes it a little bit more just a nice, easygoing Northern California vibe. Some of you know what I'm talking about. All right. Next question. If you're at events with other wineries, how does that work? So very congruent to this. So there are a number of things that we do as wineries around the country and around the state of California uh, to kind of help promote our wines, especially if we're not like if you're like us and you don't distribute your wines, they're not really readily available around the country. This, these are some of the things that we do. Uh, some of them are for uh, charity auctions and events. Uh, a couple of them that we're going to this year uh, was Shuttlecork out in uh, Kansas City. We were there in early May. Uh, to support the uh, Nelson Atkins Museum. It's an open to the public museum out in Kansas City. I've been doing that for years because we have a lot of great friends that put that on and a lot of great friends that attend it. Uh, so that's something that we love to support. Uh, we're going out to the Tum Tum Festival out in Alabama uh, this fall. I believe that's in early November. So we do some charity events. And there's always other wineries that are there, but very similar to the first question. It's not it's like super competitive. We're just there to support a good cause and, you know, share wine with great people. That's really kind of the long and short of it. There are certain, this is something that we've been doing with a few other wineries over the last probably six years now or so, almost six years. And yeah, it has 2018 when we started this, um, so five years. And it is a travel group with a few other wineries. And the brands have kind of come and gone. There have been three of us that have really been a part of it the whole time. But it's specifically, we're in a, we have wine, we're going to come to a spot in XYZ state, we're going to rent out a event space and we're going to do a wine tasting in your neck of the woods. Uh, it's something that we're doing that we did earlier this month. Actually, we were uh, in New York, we were in D.C. and we were in Philadelphia uh, for uh, just outside Philadelphia. Technically, we're 20 minutes outside the city. It was Haddonfield, New Jersey, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> big difference. I know it's a big difference. My bad. My bad. Uh, but what we do 
is we get together with other small producers in this case, and we say, hey, let's get together and bring wine and see if we can't invite you know, X amount of people. If we're at a country club, maybe we're inviting their members. And we, you know, this is a little bit of insider trading in terms of like how a small brands kind of get the word out, but we figure not everyone can come to Napa every year or even every other year. And it's nice to not have to buy the plane ticket, to pay for the hotel room, to pay for a driver, to pay for all the tastings. Let's just do a one flat ticket price. You come out for a night and we taste it. I mean, there's going to be up to 24 wines available for you to taste in, you know, about a two and a half hour period. You get to hang out with wineries and people that you know and that you're familiar with. And you get to be introduced to some other cool, like small producers. Uh, it is very state dependent. This gets a little quirky because not all states will allow us to like bring in wine to certain venues. So there's always this little bit of like give and take because we got to play by the rules. You know, it is alcohol after all. After all, there's lots of regulations. But when we travel with these wineries, we, in essence, as we're putting it together, we just try to not cross the streams too much. We all know that we're going to have, like, they're all Napa producers. So we're all, actually, there's one Sonoma producer, but I like to give that guy shit all the time. They make great cab. Love them. Uh, so we all have really good Cabernet in the lineup. So we know we're all kind of, this is where it's like a little competitive because you do have people in the room that are like just looking for the best Cabernet they can find that night. So it, it's kind of, that's where it does get a little competitive. But then we all know that there's going to be a hodgepodge of different wines between like our Merlot. There's really no one else pouring Merlot at these events. Our Pinot Gris, we're the only Pinot Gris. Uh, actually, we're the only Pinot Noir as well. So there's three wines of ours that are just like, hey, these are going to be different than what everybody else has. So there's really not any competition. We just try to work collaboratively. But number one, and this is probably the most important, is these wineries that we travel with. One, we all like the wines. Two, they're with people we actually know and trust. We don't just cold call people and say, hey, does your XYZ whatever winery want to be a part of this? No, we have to know you personally and have worked with you in some way, shape, or form previously. Or there, it has to be like a half a degree of separation. We don't travel with people we don't like. Uh, there have been a couple of times that's happened and it's ended up just so poorly and it wasn't on the winery side. It was actually a different vendor that we were working with. And we're just like, oh, my God, this is such a nightmare. It just made it just wasn't fun. Because at a certain point, you have to work and you have to sell wine and do your job. But at the same time, and this is the thing about these events. They start in the evening and they, we don't get done and like wrapped up until probably like 8, 30, 9 o'clock. Then we're going out to it's people that you'd want to go out and like have dinner with afterwards and decompress after the event because you're wired. You're up, you're going, you're going, you're going and you just want it. You're going to be awake. So you might as well go figure out something to do. So we all go to some, you know, eatery or bar or whatever. And we just sit there and talk shit and, and decompress and have a good time. And it's. It's meant to be fun. You know, it's work. It is work, but it's just, it's wine, man. Like, why would you not have fun slinging wine for a night? Like, why would you work with someone that you just don't like being around? So that's kind of a big thing for us if we're traveling with other wineries. Um, so there's, you know, a couple different facets on how we do things. One is more kind of the charitable, like, auction event kind of route. And it's just kind of the grand tasting. There's a bunch of colleagues that we see there and we say, hey, what's going on? And then there's the more focused like sales trips where 
whether it's with a distributor or whether it's with uh, just on our own that we organize with and around other wineries. And again, we, it's very much like question number one. We try to be collaborative, not step on each other's toes. And we try to, I mean, have fun with it, you know, when it's all said and done, you know, do work, sell wine, but enjoy yourself, right? All right. Now we're getting into the winemaking side of things. This, uh, this one's going to be, this one might be a long one. So let's see, let's see how far we get into this. How do you make a sweet wine versus a non-sweet wine? More sugar also means more alcohol, right? Correct. Uh, on the, on question number two. So here's the thing when it comes to making sweet wines and they're going to be, I have a couple like facts and figures in my head. This is, I see, I should really should like plan these a little bit more. I do these just live and I kind of just, I want it to be very loosey goosey. I don't want to have like a script that I'm reading from outside of like the questions that I have in front of me. Um, so please fact check me on a couple of these things that I'll say in regards to this, because I'm sure there's going to be something that I'm like a little off on. Um, okay. So Sweet wines, the definition of, let's let's get into this. So the definition of like sugar-free, you see that in, you know, all kinds of, whether it's sodas or can, you know, candy or chips or whatever, like sugar-free products. Technically what sugar-free means, and this is where you'll have to fact check me, is sugar-free as it's defined by the FDA, because that's what regulates it, uh, the alphabet agency right there. I believe it's five-tenths of a gram of sugar per serving, right? So if something is, call it, you know, an eight ounces, or like a glass of wine is what, five ounces, give or take, depending on what country club you're at. Sometimes a glass of wine's 10 ounces at a country club, and sometimes that's how that works. Um, but a glass, a glass of wine at around five ounces needs to have 0.5 grams of sugar or less to technically be sugar-free. So whatever the serving size is, whatever the volume is, it has to be 0.5 grams or less. I think that's what the regulation is. Don't quote me on it for sure, but it's definitely like low, like low. 0.5 grams of sugar is not a lot. In fact, you're probably, you might not even perceive any sweetness in that product necessarily. Um, so when you're making a non-sweet wine, that's kind of the threshold, unless your name is Riesling and you have your own scale. Riesling's weird like that. Like you ha it has its own level because Rieslings historically have a little bit more residual sugar in them. So it has like its own dryness scale. So the sugar-free or like non-sweet, we describe as dry. Dry is the adjective that we use to, to perceive or not perceive sugar. The word or the term dry in terms of wine has nothing to do with the tannin and the like, you know, that almost like sandpaper or gritty feeling that the tannins provide. So dry is a specific descriptor of sugar in a wine. So if you're going to make that non-sweet wine, it's actually fairly simple. You let the fermentation process just work its way all the way through. Because when the yeast gets going in a wine, it's eating up the sugar creating alcohol and if it eats up all or the vast majority of the sugar you have a dry or a non-sweet technically sugar-free wine uh, that's something that we try to do uh, the highest i think any of our wines has been in recent history has been like point uh, i'm gonna have to do math this is gonna be so hard um <laughs> this is gonna be tough all right so 
it's point, I'm gonna have to break out a calculator. I'm gonna have to do this. So, cause I, I just, I was going through, as we're getting ready for bottling and we're getting blending done, I have like all this kind of in my head. So in our, our biggest measurement that I've seen recently come across like our lab reports has been 0.8, that's eight tenths of a gram of sugar per liter, per liter. So that's a little bit bigger than your normal size bottle, right? And I think that was our 2021 Merlot, if I remember. So it's 0.8 per liter, 100, or sorry, 1,000 milliliters for those keeping track. So in a wine bottle, so in that entire wine bottle, there's 0.6. That's it. That's it. Dramatic pause, right? So there's 0.6 grams of sugar in that entire bottle of wine. To put that in perspective, your low calorie wines that are out there on the shelf are typically one to two grams of sugar per glass. So there's going to be at least five, if not up to 10 or more grams per liter in that one bottle. So it's a huge, huge difference between like what we do versus what other folks do. And that this is a huge sticking point for my winemaking in particular is I want our wines to be, to use that dry adjective, bone dry. Like there's no perceivable sugar and they're definitely sugar free by the guidelines of the FDA. I That's probably a little geekier than we needed to get, but like making that like non-sweet technically sugar-free wine is super, super important to me. So to break that down even further, if you have, you know, 0.6 grams of sugar in a in a bottle, you're going to get, call it five glasses out of that bottle. Oop. So we got 0.6 divided by five. Oh, that's the wrong thing. Shoot. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Math's hard. Why am I doing this wrong? I should have done this ahead of them. Regardless, it's less than point, it's a little bit over 0.1. It's like 0.12 grams per glass. Like almost, almost one-tenth of a gram per glass in our wines. I can tell you there are certain big cab producers that have way more than that. It was actually really, really funny. Someone showed me a photo of a box of Franzia Someone like ran the labs on it and like the box of Franzia, this should surprise nobody. Maybe it wasn't Franzia. Please don't come after me. I, I saw the photo at a glance. So it's not Franzia. It rhymes with Ranzia. I don't know. <laughs> but it had like 34 grams per liter. 34 grams per liter. Oh boy. Oh boy, that's a lot. But it, it's, it's meant to be kind of an off dryer of sweet wine. So there you have it. So for making the non-sweet, we got a little sidetracked there, but for making the non-sweet wines, you're letting that fermentation process roll all the way through and you're letting the yeast do its job and eat up as much of the sugar as possible. So there's an incredibly small amount of sugar remaining in that wine. Now, if you're going to make, if your goal is to make a sweet wine, you can do a couple different things. Uh, one, you have to stop that fermentation process at some point, which can mean, you know, using an additive of some sort to kill off that yeast. You could filter it out, 
you could filter it out. Um, you can also chill down the fermentation vessel. That's not going to stop it, you know, right out the gate, but you can chill it down. That'll slowly get that fermentation to stop. I mean, the problem is that at that volume, it's really tough with the heat that's coming off of a fermentation. It can be tough uh, to chill down that vessel depending on what it is. Um, so typically it's probably filtered out or some sort of uh, additive is used to stop the fermentation to make sure that wine stays a little bit sweet. Now, the ace in the hole, though, realistically for a lot of places is that you let the fermentation just go all the way through and then you add sugar in the form of some sort of grape concentrate after the fact. That way you can dial in exactly how much sugar you want because the fermentation process can be a little bit of an imperfect science because it's a living, breathing thing that's going on. So you can't just like say, all right, fermentation's done now. It's still going to bubble a little bit over the coming days. So in my opinion, I've never tried to make kind of off dry or sweet wines. So I don't, I'm not super familiar with the process, but in my mind, it's easier to add a concentrate. If you need like X amount of sugar in your wine or you want that, it's easier to add it back later than it is to try and hope you hit this moving target that's moving very fast during the fermentation process. So making a sweet wine is just arresting the fermentation at some point or adding that sugar back in in some way shape or form down the road making the non-sweet wine is just letting the fermentation process go all the way through uh, that was probably more detail than you needed but this this is something that's a huge point of contention in my winemaking and it's something that is in my opinion a huge problem with a lot of wines that are out there is that they don't disclose the sugar that's in their wine and a lot of places put and have a lot of sugar in them. Uh, there was this guy that uh, we were talking to, gosh, this would have been a f couple weeks ago, maybe. Eh, time blends together. Uh, but like, like bulky dude, like CrossFit kind of guy. And a friend's telling me this story and he's like, is this bulky like CrossFit guy? Like very into fitness. And specifically looking for like lower alcohol, non-sweet wines, which, you know, can be tough to find in the States. And he was drinking Prosecco. And he's like, yeah, this has low alcohol. And, you know, I think the sugar is really low on it as well, too. So and I, I, he, I don't know where he had heard that. He was dreadfully mistaken. And my friend, who, who's kind of an ass, but I love him, was like, here's how much sugar's actually in this. And here's the sugar that's in, like, our Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, the alcohol's higher in our Sauvignon Blanc, but there's so much more sugar in this that whatever you're worried about fitness-wise, you're defeating the purpose. Like, this Prosecco's not going to do it for you. And I love good Prosecco. But the one that he had chosen was just the wrong one to choose. So, and, and you would never know that unless you go and try and find, like, the technical data sheets from these winemakers' websites. This is such a, this, this sweet wine versus non-sweet wine versus, like, actual sugar content and, like, kind of the nutrition facts thing is... Uh, it's it's a huge point of contention for me personally because there's a lot of stuff that can be used in winemaking that is simply not listed on bottles. And when you're someone who tries to use grapes, yeast, maybe a very low dose of sulfites plus barrels, and that's it, as often as we can, like that's it's important to me that folks know that and the big guys and even small guys that use all kinds of bullshit in their wines 
kind of get away scot-free. It's, it's kind of a bummer. Um, but sugar is always a big one for me because that's something that I think should be listed on wine. That way you actually know what you're putting in your body. We have to list alcohol. Why wouldn't you have to list the sugar content? You know, kind of, kind of my opinion on things. So, uh, the second part of that question, more sugar means more alcohol. Correct. The typically the more sugar you have in your grapes, the more potential there is for a higher alcohol content. Very typically, this is why I try and harvest earlier is that why that way the sugar content's a little lower outside of a couple of exceptions uh, with our wines pushing up towards the 15% range, maybe a little more. Um, that happens rarely. Uh, but it's something I do try and actively avoid because I do like wines that are a little bit more restrained. Uh, that's more of just a stylistic consideration of where your fruit is and what it's doing in that given harvest season. Uh, you know, but yes, if you have, you know, higher percentage of sugar in your grapes, typically that will translate to a higher alcohol content. There are a couple tricks of the trade. Uh, that you can do to reduce alcohol once it's in there. Um, in fact, this is something that uh, Dunn Vineyards up on Howe Mountain has been doing forever. Um, I think Randy might still think that anything above 14% alcohol is flawed. So he has been de-alking his wines for a long time, which I think is just a reverse osmosis process. Uh, you, just re you just remove the alcohol. It's, it's a filtering process, basically. Um, so he'll back down the alcohol content after the fact, if it's a little bit higher to make sure that it's below 14%. He was doing that for years. I don't know if that's still the case, uh, but I, I mean, at least through, I think the nineties and early two thousands, that was for sure a thing. And those wines are still great. Even after the fact, I mean, it's just a filtering process. It's not that big of a deal, um, but just an interesting way to go about it. So you can remove alcohol after the fact, if you need your wine to be lower alcohol, but as with all filtering processes, you're not just going to lose the alcohol. There's going to be other stuff that goes along with it, typically. All right. Question number four. How often do you make a batch of wine and it ends up not being any good? Oh, boy. Um, so I, this is going to sound kind of douchey, so I apologize. But if you're good at what you do as a winemaker, that doesn't happen. Uh, there are going to be certain barrels that you prefer and certain barrels that are more blending components. Uh, check out the uh, blending uh, show that we had earlier this month. Uh, there are going to be certain barrels that you know, like, hey, this is going to be a great component, but it's not going to, I don't want this to be like the backbone of this wine. It's very, very rare that for us and for, I think, many people that you just like dump out a batch of wine because it's no good. Um, it's, it's just not something that happens because you, you only have this one chance per year to make wine. If you screw it up, you're just bad at your job. Like, like there are, there can be certain things that are out of your control, but if you're, just, if you're on top of it, that doesn't happen. It's, it's tough. To, it's tough to mess up that badly. I can tell you there's one year and this was actually, this is 2011, my second year of making wine. There was one barrel from that vintage that I simply did not like. It was some of our heavier pressed stuff uh, where we squeezed the grapes really, really hard to get the juice out and the wine out before it went into barrel. There was one, one barrel, about 60 gallons. Uh, we had, if I remember right, we had, it would have been six barrels total. So one of those barrels was just really rough, really green, really bitter. It just wasn't 
something that was going to contribute to a high quality wine it was still fine like it was a well-made wine but it just made the rest of the blend way too edgy and so we sold that 60 gallons off to somebody i don't even remember who we sold it to uh, but we sold it on the bulk market and said hey go do whatever you want to do with it we're not going to use it because it just doesn't fit into our program so even then it was fine but it just it didn't work for what mtga needed to be so we just sold it off um, so you see that happen more often than not is that you have winemakers kind of make their blending cuts or they decide what barrels are kind of the ones that they want to use for their program and if there's anything outside of that it gets sold off to you know whoever producer or private label or whatever the case may be i have a, another good buddy that works for it's not really a brokerage necessarily but or a distributor it kind of is somewhere in between but he's always on the hunt for decent Napa Valley Cabernet that wineries are just selling because they're not going to use it because they can repurpose it, blend it and bottle it and then sell it. I mean, this is what Dave Finney was doing with the prisoner. Like that's how that kind of stuff comes to be in some situations where you're just taking this amalgamation of other stuff that other wineries aren't going to use and you repurpose it to still make a good wine out of it. So, you know, that's super, super common within the industry that, you know, there's, it's not necessarily that the wine's not any good, but it doesn't fit into your program. That probably sounds super diplomatic, uh, but that's really the case. Um, there has been one barrel that I've tasted recently. Uh, Auction Napa Valley happened uh, at the beginning of June, uh, which is the big kind of charity fundraiser uh, that the Napa Valley Vintners put on. And there's this big barrel auction, typically on Friday before the live auction. You go through, you can taste through barrels and like bid on cases of wine from these barrel samples it's a pretty it's it's arguably i think one of the my favorite events in in napa year in year out it's, it's a lot of fun you get to taste a lot of wines eat a lot of great food there's stuff there that you would just never find um and there can be these really unique varieties or blends that are put together for it it's, it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun and there's one barrel that i tasted there and it was kind of like a few other people like dude you got to go try this and one person and a couple of people I now know they were kind of doing it as a gag, but one person was like, dude, that wine's so fucked up. Like, I don't know what they did with it, but it's, 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 there's, there's a problem there. And so I go and I taste it and I ran into another good buddy who was just extol, actually extolling the virtues of this barrel and how tasty it was. I took one smell of it and I was like, this has a problem. Like th this is flawed in some way, shape or form. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I got a pretty decent guess. And I, I felt so bad. I was like, compared to some of the other wines I tasted, and it's subjective, and I'm gonna talk a little shit, but that wine was, it was actually bad. And you know, if you're bidding on this case of wine, you know what, if you love it, more power to you, but who boy, who boy. It was rough. So I don't know how that happens, especially from this particular producer that has been around a very long time. They are under new ownership though, so who knows. Uh, yeah, so I guess it does happen to some people <laughs> that you end up with a batch of wine that's like, yeah, it's not that great. Um, but it's it's very few and far between just because I think I think any winemaker kind of knows the what's at stake. You have one season, one season a year. This is this isn't like the beer industry where, oh, this batch got screwed up. And we'll start over next week and we'll have it in a few days like that. That's not how it works. We have one year. One season and kind of make it all go right and there might be certain wines that we cut from the herd and don't use 
but we don't dump them down the drain. We try and repurpose them. That's how our red blend was created. Actually, when we started making a red blend, that was kind of the starting point for it. Or we just sell it off to whoever wants to use it and call it good from there. So, all right. With that, we have our wine of the week. I'm so excited. This has been a fun segment over the last three. We've only been doing it for three weeks, but I don't care. It's been a blast because with the amount of wine we drink, it's nice to provide some recommendations. And this one is, this is kind of like an OG favorite of mine. It's, this is, to be completely honest, if you see their wines, I think they still distribute a decent amount of their wines. And many of you will know one of them, I think. Uh, but if I see these on a wine list somewhere and I just don't know what I'm in the mood for, this is like the ace up my sleeve. And the, the vineyard that we had is one of their single vineyard Cabernets. It's not necessarily ready available all the time. Uh, you might not see it out and about in restaurants or retail shops, but if you see any of the other wines out there, I say, you know, give them a shot because they're awesome. Uh, that is uh, Flora Springs. Some of you are probably familiar, very familiar with their trilogy, their red blend. Uh, for me, that's been one of my favorite wines just year in, year out. It's, it's a diesel engine, man. It just, you start it up and it just goes. It's so good. But what we drank the other night, uh, we had some friends over uh, for a taco night, and we did uh, their Holy Smoke Vineyard. Uh, 2015 vintage, we had had it sitting around for a little while. Uh, 2015 Holy Smoke Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, it's one of their single vineyard Cabernets that can be a little tougher to track down. Uh, you probably have to go through their website or into their wine club these days to get it. Uh, but it was just lights out. It, it's And as any Flora Springs I've ever had, it's just been good good stuff um and you know what it was just it was exactly what we wanted it was this perfect like the night was kind of cooling down we got the fire pit going we poured ourselves a little bit of 2015 holy smoke cab and it was just rocking it was so yummy uh they've done they just continue to do a great job it was it was such a bummer because they did sell the the old winery uh they're still making wine they still retained the flora springs brand uh the family did uh, but they did sell the old winery, which is kind of a bummer. It was a really cool spot. Been to a lot of release parties there. They they were always so much fun. And uh, that, man, their single vineyard cabs are just awesome. It, it's, it's worth trying the Holy Smoke Vineyard. Their Wild Boar Vineyard is also equally just like, mm, so good. Um, yeah, that's the wine of the week by far. It was big, it was silky, it was smooth. I know the current releases that are available are probably going to be a little bit more intense, have a little bit more oomph to them. But if you're looking for some single vineyard Cabernets that are just drink them now or hang on to them for five to seven years, these they'll treat you all right. They'll treat you all right. That is the wine of the week. 2015 Floor Springs Holy Smoke Vineyard. I'll uh, put a link to their uh, current release in the uh, comments or description of this video rather so that way you can track it down check it out if you want so well that about does it we're about at time so thank you all so much for tuning in that has been the june q a session again be sure to submit your questions uh if you actually have any wines that you want us to try this is something i didn't even think about until just now uh, if there are certain wines that you want us to try and kind of give an honest opinion see if they qualify for a wine of the week mention you know, include those in the uh, questions that you may have, and we'll try and hunt them down and try them out and see what they are all about. So thank you so much for tuning in. Continue to share the podcast with your friends, your wine-loving family, whatever the case may be. We'll be back next week. It is July almost. Oh, how is this year going so fast? It's going so fast. It's crazy.
It's absolutely crazy. But you know what? Time flies when you're having fun. We'll see you next week.